HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. My name is Sarah Kim, and I'm from Austin, Texas. I'm a Cheeselandian because while life is great, cheese makes it better. Go to Cheeselandia.com to learn more, and if it's for you, sign up. This week on Meet and 3, we continue our trade series with a piquant look at the many faces of the spice trade. From the high price tag of saffron to the ubiquity of chilies and the potential ripple effect that farmer protests in India may have on the global spice market. You know, farmers are, are protesting because they feel like their lives and livelihoods are on the line. You find it in a lot of cured foods, like cured meat and Parmesan cheese. Um, you also find it in ripening foods, like ripe tomatoes are very high in uh, MSG. So there's sources of it all over the natural world. Tune in to Meet and 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Inside Julia's Kitchen, the podcast of the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts. I'm your host, Todd Shulkin, the Foundation's Executive Director. Our show takes you inside the Foundation's world to meet the talented people we have the great fortune of learning from all the time. On today's show, we welcome distiller and writer Jackie Summers. In this episode, we're going to talk to Jackie about inventing a new liqueur, distilling while black, and we'll hear Jackie's Julia moment. Stay with us. We'll be right back. As always, we launch the conversation with an inspiration from Julia. A lot of attention has been given over the years to Julia's love of wine. It is true that she really liked it. More importantly, she was an advocate for good winemaking and the American wine industry. It is not true that she was ever drunk on camera. Beyond wine, Julia certainly enjoyed a good cocktail at the appropriate hour. After all, one of her maxims about the secret to her longevity was red meat and gin. Her husband Paul was famous for his inventive cocktails, and a house favorite was a reverse martini, 
essentially more vermouth than gin with a twist of lemon zest. Julia liked to say the best thing about a reverse martini was you could have two of them. But that was about the extent of Julia's exploration of spirits. Someone who's taken Julia's appreciation for a cocktail and gone so much deeper is Jackie Summers. In addition to being an acclaimed writer, public speaker, and a serial entrepreneur, Jackie is the founder of Jack from Brooklyn, a craft distillery, and he's also the creator of the award-winning Sorel Liqueur. A native New Yorker, he's actually from Queens, not Brooklyn, but that's okay, he has been recognized as one of the 100 most influential bar industry figures in both 2019 and 2020 by Drinks International Magazine, and he was named to the Imbibe Top 75 this year, 2021. He also holds the distinction of being among the few African-Americans who hold a distilling license, and he's going to explain why that's more of an outrage than an honor, but important to know nonetheless. Jackie joins us today to talk about his signature liqueur, Sorel, and share his story as a black man navigating the drinks industry. Welcome to the podcast, Jackie. An absolute pleasure to be here. We're delighted you could join us. And we wanted to start with just tell us your story about how did you end up starting the distillery or brand as well, Jack from Brooklyn? Oh, uh, easy. I had a cancer scare a decade ago. My doctor found a tumor inside my spine the size of a golf ball. And he said, you are probably going to die. He said, you have a 95% chance of death and a 50% 50 chance of post paralysis if you live. You should probably organize your papers. Uh, Turns out I lived. Yay! Well, that might drive anyone to drink. So so when you lived, you thought you needed more alcohol in your life. Well, it it adjusted my perspective. I had 25 years invested in corporate America, but it really made me think, what do I want to do with the rest of my life? And the thing I wanted to do more than anything else in the world was day drink. (laughs) I want to be around cool people in the middle of the day, like I am right now, virtually, (laughs) talking about things that matter. And I wanted to do have those conversations over great food and drink, and I wanted to monetize it. And when I couldn't think of why anybody would pay me to do something like dare drink with cool people, I figured I'd store my own liquor brand. How hard can it be? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, it's good that you didn't think first about the barriers. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I tend to not think in terms of whether or not things are possible or not possible. I tend to think, I want to do this. I'm going to do this. And so you did. And what was, uh, was Sorel, your liqueur brand, the first thing you did or or not exactly? Well, it's interesting. Sorel is based on a 400-year-old a Caribbean beverage called Sorrel. It's been around for centuries. Every Caribbean family has a version of this that they do in the kitchen, and everyone thinks that theirs is the best. So, of course, I thought my version was the best, but no one had ever put it in a bottle. No one had ever made a shelf-stable version of this and sold it, an alcoholic version. So I told myself, having no experience as a food chemist, 
having no experience in the liquor industry and having no money, then I would be the first person to do this. Again, how hard could it be? <laughs> well, and also, right, you're using, you you are going to um, do a drink with its origins in the Caribbean. And I, I'd like you to describe what goes into it, but but it has a local thing in, in, in Brooklyn. They first started to import hibiscus flowers uh, as part of the transatlantic slave trade from West Africa in the 1600s. And British naval officers would make a tea because hibiscus has all of these terrific medicinal properties. It's a natural antimicrobial. It's an antioxidant. Uh, it is uh, an aphrodisiac. And because they had a partial, because the British naval officers had a portion of rum in their stipend, they would put rum in the tea to preserve its 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 length, and this became a standard drink that was going around the Caribbean. Depending on what island you landed on, it would be buttressed with other spices. If you went to Jamaica, you might get cardamom and allspice. If you went to Trinidad and Tobago, you might get cinnamon and nutmeg. But it it was around for again around four hundred years, so and much- so it, it it's something that actually it's not necessarily native. Well, I guess the people who were making it were imported themselves to excuse the expression. So it's it's actually a drink that comes out of sort of the whole melange, good and bad of the colonial era. Versions of this exist throughout the uh, African diaspora. You would if you went to West Africa. Uh, they have a different name for this, which is escaping me at the moment. It'll come to me in a second. If you went to Mexico, they call this Jamaica. Uh, so versions of this have existed, and that West African version is going to bother me. Bisop. Okay. They would call it, it Bisop in Ghana, for example. Okay. So this, is, this again, this has been around for eons. No one had ever bottled it. And the joke I tell at this point is, if you if you have an idea that you think is such a good idea that no one's ever thought of it before, it's probably a terrible idea. <laughs> <laughs> or there are reasons why it's so difficult. It's probably right. a reason why no one has done this before. And when I started to try to create a shelf-stable version of this, it turned out that there were really good reasons nobody had done this before. Uh, and again, without having the technical background, I actually was able to, I actually was the first person to figure out how to make a version of this that you can open, close, come back years later. It does not alter the taste. You can leave it in the back of the car, you can freeze it, you can nuke it, you can boil it. I made the first ever shelf stable version of this beverage. And what was it about it before that made it so unstable? It would just spoil or something? Oh, because it's organic products, it always it's it goes bad. But what happened was the alcoholic version, people were using rum to stabilize it, and that is a problem. Rum has its own dissolved sugars. It has its own particulate matter. Rum never bonded on a molecular level with the particulate in the base mix. I was the first person to use a neutral wheat grain alcohol at medicinal strength to form polysaccharine, to form poly- polysaccharine chains inside the mix which manifest as pectins. It's almost like a jelly. You remove pectins, and what's left is not only shelf-stable, because you've taken out all all of the particulate that would go bad, it's crystal clear and beautiful. So that was my contribution on a scientific level to actually making this beverage something everybody could enjoy. Wow, because... 
people were kind of locked into like, well, it's always been made if it's alcoholic with rum. So why wouldn't you use rum? That is what I feel makes it not just a Caribbean drink for me, but a Brooklyn drink to me. Brooklyn has always been a place where people made things. And sometimes making things means figuring out how to make it not just different, but how to make it better. You want to stand on the shoulders of tradition, but at the same time, you want to be free to innovate. And so your version, what are the ways that you drink it? Oh, this is this is actually a great thing because it's freezing in Brooklyn right now. <laughs> it comes from a place where it's always hot. So traditionally, this is just served over ice and it's delicious. But right now, it's perfect in a toddy. So if, if you drink it hot, it's spicy and nutty. If you drink it cold, it's fruity and floral. So the what how you how how you're drinking it depends on where you are and what the weather's like at the moment. Well, wow. so actually between the season the way it's seasoned and the hibiscus flavoring and the alcohol, you literally get different properties at different temperatures. So I want to say right now that Sorel is made from hibiscus, ginger, cinnamon, nutmeg, and clove. And depending on what you want to bring out, you can highlight any of those notes. If you were to have a sip neat, room temperature, you get mostly clove on the nose, very bright. But as soon as you take that first sip, the fruitiness of the hibiscus covers your palate. And as it finishes, you get the nuttiness of, uh, you get the wood of, you get the wood of nutmeg on the back and the slight burn of cinnamon on the sides. And you don't actually taste alcohol because the ginger is almost perfectly masking the frequency of the alcohol. It is, it is a procession of flavors instead of a single note. Wow. I mean, I'm kind of, I, now I'm completely torn, but I guess the answer is you do both is, so you have it in a hot drink if you want to be cozy, but if you really need to escape away from the cold, it feels like you should go cold and imagine yourself in the Caribbean. Traditionally, again, Caribbeans drink this straight, but what happened when I put this out into the bartender community is they did things with it I did not imagine. It literally mixes with every single liquor out there. I've seen Sorel Manhattans. I've seen Sorel with Mezcal, with sparkling wine. I've seen it with gin. That happens a lot in the springtime. I've seen it in toddies. I've seen it with whiskey. You can mix this with anything. It is a... Uh, distinctive and plays well with others. Wow. Yeah. No, I, I wish I'd already tried it. Can you compare it to things people might be more familiar with? Like, is it as bitter as Campari or is it sweeter like Aperol or is it more like Cassis? Where is it in sort of a spectrum of things that are commonplace? It is the, the Campari and Aperol comparisons are apt uh, I'm going to be egotistical and say Sorel is better than both of those things. And it, it has greater flexibility and greater accessibility. If you were to buy a bottle of Campari or a bottle of Aperol, they might last months in your home because you're only going to drink them if you're making cocktails. Three or four friends can sit with a bottle of Sorel and in an hour finish it like a bottle of wine. It's more accessible. 
And what, what, what alcohol content is it just, just for people preparing to do that? It's 15% alcohol, so roughly the strength of a fortified wine. Okay, yeah. So it's not massively uh, powerful. No. No. So let, let's talk about its, its own story in, in, in its um, not super long life. So, you know, my understanding is you've had both, as you were talking about, some immediate wow success, and then more recently some disappointments in what you were trying to do with Sorel. And I'm also sure the pandemic is not added to that very helpfully, but maybe not. So just kind of tell us where things are with Sorel and, and with your distillery right now. So Sorel is actually in the middle of going through a complete reboot. Uh, we've got brand new investors who are looking to put it in places it hasn't been before. And the Barbadian government reached out to me recently and want to make it a national beverage. So they want me to not only have it made in the U.S., they want a version of it made in Barbados with local ingredients by local hands. So I'm looking forward to building a distillery in Barbados this year uh, because in their mind, this is the ideal immigrant story. My grandparents left Barbados exactly 100 years ago with the idea, with the idea that they would come to this country and make a better life for their ancestors, for their children. And the prime minister of Barbados recently found out that here I am, a child of the children of Barbados, taking part of my heritage and bringing, bringing it to the world, they couldn't be happier. So they want to bring it home and become a hub for distribution around the Caribbean while it's being completely rebooted in, in the United States. So it seems like the synergy is actually all coming through. No, that sounds amazing. Is Barbados the place that was also advertising like at the height of the pandemic, like a kind of special visa to go there and work from there and why not? Or I might be mixing it up with a different Caribbean island. No, you are correct. And I will tell you that that's had mixed results. They're kind of having, <laughs> they're kind of having a COVID spike at the moment. But <laughs> Well, I was thinking more for your vibe of the entrepreneurial spirit is clearly Barbados is doing some creative thinking and, and trying to you know, maybe be more than just a pure vacation destination. And, and I, that's exciting, I think. The interesting part to me about the Barbados deal is they recognize that as with all botanicals, it's just like a grape. It's dependent on the quality of the soil. So traditionally, the soil I make here in Brooklyn is made with Moroccan hibiscus. It's not made with Caribbean hibiscus because the Caribbean is a tropical environment. The arid tr nature of Morocco yields a much more potent flower. It's much punchier. So right now we're having conversations about how to match that punchiness with a varietal grown in the Caribbean. So we're looking at agriculture. We're talking to different farmers. We're figuring out how we can make uh, not just a sustainable product, but something that can be exported. So it's a, it's, a, it's a big, interesting project that doesn't just deal with tourism. Now we're dealing with, art, with agriculture as well. Love it. That's great. Yeah, I was going to ask you, so will assuming all, all the hopes and dreams come to fruition with, with all these different details you have to pull together, will the Sorel that's made there be branded differently? And is the main change just actually the flavor from the local versus importer hibiscus or how, or, or you haven't gotten that far of how it will be different or branded differently? It will be the same branding, but I feel this will be again, similar to Campari in that if you were to have Campari in Italy, 
it tastes different than compared to you would get here. It'll be the same recipe, but it will have that very specific distinctiveness of being made in, in a particular place. I don't think it's, it, it's not terroir, it's provenance. It will have the provenance of being made in Barbados. Well, I can see, it, given what a cult success it was when you first launched it in Brooklyn, um, I can see it being, you know, a little bit like Mexican Coke, you know, was a big, uh, the connoisseurs thing where people are like, yeah, but I'm drinking this one because, it, you know, I know my stuff. Exactly. And so for those who certainly my appetite is wet and I would like to have some immediately, and I know you're kind of in between iterations, what's what's the projection of when at least the American-made Sorel will be available again? We're looking at being in half of the country by summertime. Oh, that sounds like perfect timing and right yeah. for special promotion. So, so you're so you're on basically on track to bringing it back to market soon. Absolutely. Well, that's great to hear. Okay, we'll be right back to talk to Jackie about his experience as a black man in the old boy-dominated drinks industry. Stay with us. My name is Sarah Kim, and I'm from Austin, Texas. I'm a Cheeselandian because while life is great, cheese makes it better. And Wisconsin cheese has proven time and time again to be a delicious expression of craft, hard work, and tradition. As a Cheeselandian, I am able to share a Gouda experience with fellow cheese and food lovers nationwide, as well as connect with cheese producers and cheesemongers, taking my love of cheese to another level. I invite you to join Cheeselandia because during these difficult times, it has been even more important to take it easy and get cheesy. The Cheeselandia community and events have been the glue helping to keep us together and connected, and I would love it if you would join me. And let's face it, if you hear the word cheese and get a little hungry, then you've found a place you can call home. To find out more about Cheeselandia, go to Cheeselandia.com. Welcome back. We're talking to writer and drinks entrepreneur Jackie Summers, founder of the Jack from Brooklyn Distillery and creator of Sorel, about his experience as a black man in the drinks industry. So, Jackie, I wanted to dig a bit deeper, and, and I know you've spent quite a bit of time and even kind of shifted your focus a bit to talk more about this. So before we get into the sort of race side of it, becoming a distiller isn't easy to start with. So could you start us with like, what are the barriers to entry to become a distiller, no matter who you are, or what you look like? The short version of the story is you can trace all of the licensing associated with getting a liquor license back to the repeal of the Volstead Act. The same people who made a fortune selling legal illegally and pay, paying police or police departments look the other way paid politicians to write laws in a particular way when when prohibition was repealed that prohibited market entry unless you had a lot of money or were part of a liquor family. Uh, so, just to give you an example. In order to get a liquor license, a license to make liquor, it's a federal, city, and state check. Uh, you need to have it's it's a ten year background check everywhere you've lived, every dime you've made. Uh, 
and if there's a comma different on any of the three on any of the three separate uh, applications, they send you back to the beginning. And just to be clear, you need you need to have the physical address where you plan to make this on your application, meaning they expect you to pay rent on the empty space while you are waiting for your license. And that process can take one to two years. So if you don't have that kind of bank sitting around where you're waiting for your license, you can't do this. So given what we talked about in the first part of the show, it's amazing that you decided, oh, this is still a good idea. But is it actually that's about making it commercially and selling it. If you're just doing R&D and product development, do you also have to have all of that in place or or you can kind of at least do that before that major investment? Oh, you can do whatever you want in your own kitchen. You 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 simply cannot try to sell alcohol. It's probably the second most controlled substance in America behind plutonium. Uh, the And it's not just because uh, it's a dangerous thing. I mean, I'm buying totes of medicinal grade alcohol that would be ideal if I had uh, nefarious implications. It is also that the government makes money on this. One of the reasons that the government went into the Great Depression after uh, the Volstead Act was was invoked was because they were getting almost all of their revenue from liquor taxes. There was no income tax before the Volstead Act. Income tax was specifically created when they realized we're not making money from collecting taxes on alcohol anymore. We need to compensate for this. So both for the purposes of protecting the public good and collecting money for taxes, getting an alcohol license is hard to do. And what would you say is... You know, I mentioned at the beginning of the show that you're one of the few African Americans, and and when you got yours, there was you might have been the only one to have one. But just in context, how do you even break down of the you know the major distilleries, the Jack Daniels of the world, um, and the other big spirits companies versus craft distillers? Is 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 there still are there actually a lot of people in general who have a a craft distillery license, or is it really that's also very few. This is this is an interesting part of history. It's been now proven that Jack Daniels was taught how to make liquor by an enslaved individual. And if we're going to be very honest about this, in the first couple of hundred years of this country, none of the people who were making alcohol were the people who owned the plantations. They enslaved people to do this. So there's a long history in this country of taking not just the labor, but the knowledge of people that look like me, benefiting off of it, profiting off of it, and cutting them out of it entirely. Cocktail culture is another thing, which along with just the creation of alcohol, bears the same mark. The people who owned plantations did not do their own cooking. They also weren't making their own drinks. So you and do you, do you think a lot of this just we've covered quite a bit on the, this podcast, the important subject of, you know, the origins of Southern food, which are very much the origins of, Mary, of many foods that have become 
non-Southern but just American being in, invented or mostly made by black cooks, usually slaves. It, would you say that's also true of drinks? Entirely. Entirely. It's one thing to say George Washington had a distillery. He was not the distiller. <laughs> he had enslaved people doing this for him. And was this a cultural tradition enslaved people brought with them from Africa? Or it was also like what we talked about before. It was enslaved people using the resources and things that they came to know and their past knowledge. What, what's the history of the knowing how to distill and to make it taste good? I mean, it's a little column A, a little column B. If we're going to be honest about this, all of history comes from 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 North North Africa, where the Arabs were distilling in the in the early 1100s, 1300s, and the only reason Europe got it was because of the Crusades. They were drinking bad ale when they <laughs> to to, North, to in, on these Crusades on on their mission and and, and realized. Holy crap, they're making alcohol. We can drink this. And they brought that back with them. And because of that, we've got all of the great whiskeys and scotches of, of Europe. And and God bless, but like all of that knowledge, all of it came from North Africa. Well, that's so ironic because a large part of North Africa is now dry. And is that what went was that tradition then brought from North Africa to West Africa, where a huge amount of the slave trade was centered, and then that was then brought to the Caribbean or or how did it travel and it's it's pretty easy to trace much of these roots uh, where these cultures began along the transatlantic slave trade. Yeah, not just the techniques and the knowledge, but the ingredients themselves. But I'm also struck by, or maybe I just don't know it, if you go to West Africa now, are there unique um, liqueurs and cocktails, or was it a lot of the amalgamation of a certain amount of knowledge mixed with the the bounty that was produced in the Caribbean and the American South? Again, this is an A, B, this is a little column A, little column B thing. There are tons, tons of quote-unquote undiscovered products. And this is, I think, the beauty of Sorel and why it did so well. Sorel sat around in the Caribbean for centuries before I decided to put it in a bottle. My model as a distiller, for, as, as Jack from Brooklyn, as a company, is how many other things are out there like this, waiting? Beverages with centuries of culture and, and heritage, waiting for somebody to go, oh, I should bottle this. I should put some signs to it and figure out how to make it shelf-stable, put a, an accessible label on it, and go, here's this thing that's been waiting for the whole world to discover it. That's kind of my, that's part of my life mission, to travel the world, eat, drink with cool people, see what it is that they're eating and drinking, and go, hey, is this something that the entire world should enjoy? And if the answer is yes, I want to make permanent contribution to the culinary firmament. That's so amazing. It's amazing to think what, you know, if you go to a really well-stocked bar, if you actually can get into one right now, you know, there's already such an amazing array. And to think that that is the, only the tip of the iceberg, I think, is really exciting. And um, I, I hope that pans out. Well, I mean, it sort of. We've got several basic categories. There's tons of gins, tons of whiskeys, tons of rums, tons of vodkas. 
the reason Sorel did so well is because it is a category unto itself. It competes with nothing. And my goal as a distiller is not ever to make a rum or a mezcal or a tequila or a gin. There are enough of those in the world. My goal as a distiller is to go and find the things that have no competition and create categories for them. Well, I wanted to go back because I think it's important to cover and that you're uniquely placed to talk about it. So we talked about how difficult it is to become a distiller, particularly in terms of capital and licensing and having a squeaky clean record and doing everything um, very precisely. So if we add into that that you're a black man from Brooklyn or any person of color, maybe you could talk about the barriers you felt you faced or what additional barriers that I think are more subtle because they're not on a, a a checklist from the government per se. Can you talk about that a little bit? So when I got my liquor license in early 2012, I was the first black person in the modern era after prohibition to have one. And that is specifically a distilled spirits permit. It's a license to make liquor. After me was Chris Montana out at Do North Spirits. Uh, and now there are, I think, five or six of us around the country. So yay, progress. And, 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 and to be clear, there were people before me who had import licenses and people who had a contract distilling, but a license to make liquor, back then it was just me. And it's interesting because, again, there are all of these systemic barriers which you don't think of as barriers. If you think at the rate, for example at which black people are arrested for minor, for minor infractions as opposed to any other group, you can't get a liquor license if you've got that on your record. If you're walking around New York City with an ounce of marijuana, you end up in jail. Think of all the opportunities that go out of the water just like that. And it, it is an example that I always use. We talk no, about- and it's one I was thinking about when you were talking about it. And how can you... Like if it happened 20 years ago, is that okay? Or you literally have to have the world's most squeaky clean, clean record for your whole life? You can't have any infractions legally on your, on your record, period. Which is interesting if you think about who actually wrote these laws. <laughs> yeah, which one of the most criminal enterprises going? But that is ironic. And what are some of the other barriers? Because I've read and, and heard you talk about just the way the industry is structured in a way to be very white dominated. It, it was interesting going out when I first started this again because no one had ever seen a black liquor brand owner. The most common response I got when I showed up at restaurants or retail stores was deliveries are in the back. Nobody believed I was the owner. I cannot tell you how many times I did public liquor tastings and people asked me to my face if I was trying to poison them. <laughs> okay. I, I, I wish I was kidding. I will tell you that I once gave a presentation for a major distributor uh, out in New Jersey, someone who carried us in a bunch of states, thought nothing of it. Thought nothing of it. It was it was a general sales sales meeting. Phone to people, gave a 20-minute presentation, standing ovation, I left. Later that year, the same exact company had a, 
a tasting, a, 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 they're, they're, they're spring tasting. And I was invited to come pour. And of course, I took the invitation and I got there and everyone I knew was there. The sales reps are there. The accountants are there. The receptionist was there. And the receptionist ran up to me and gave me a big hug because she remembered me. She said, you know, I meant to tell you when you were sitting in the lobby, security called and asked if there was a problem. What did they think I was going to do? And I think I was going to ask you about your view of, you know, in the light of all that went, happened in 2020, and in particular, after the pandemic, the Black Lives Matter movement, and how much change you are hoping to see or think has been accomplished. But I also think what you're talking about is really what that revealed is all of these subtle ways that they're not even racist tropes. They're reactions that are so deeply embedded, people aren't even necessarily conscious of how you're conscious of it, but they're not conscious of how it's both causing them to act a certain way and then impacting other people. It wasn't very subtle. (laughs) (laughs) It wasn't very subtle at all. Uh, 2020 was interesting in that people actually acknowledged that racism is real, which is interesting for me because I had been writing and teaching about it now for a decade. When I saw the way things were going in my industry, I was already a writer. I thought the best thing I can do to help out hospitality is to teach and write about the nature of discrimination. And I started to talk about racism. And the interesting thing there is you can't tell people don't be anti you, you can't tell people don't be racist because no one thinks of themselves as racist. You have to say you have to learn to be anti-racist because the system that we move through is racist. And I thought about this and I said to myself, I don't think of myself as sexist, but am I anti-sexist? And the answer was no. The answer was, like most other men, I was raised in a culture of toxic masculinity, and I needed to do the work on myself to remove that from how, from my perspective, and it's something I still work on. But once you have that revelation, you can look and go, what? where else are my holes? Where else am I, uh, where else in my field of vision am I not aware that I'm contributing to someone else's oppression? Am I actually actively anti-misogynistic? Am I taking a stand against homophobia? Am I taking a stand against anti-Semitism? Am I taking a stand against anti against Islamophobia? Or am I just passively letting these things go? Because if you're passive about this, you're contributing to the problem. I think that's such a helpful description, which is to not spend time thinking about whether you are or aren't but know that everybody has biases and to think about, is that bias just? I, I was thinking about my own experience where I grew up in a very racially divided city in the Midwest, and I grew up in a household that was very liberal, and I did not hear racial slurs or anything like that. But yet at the same time, there was literally a line and a road where black people didn't leave, live west of it. And if you grow up in that environment, that's going to affect your view, even if you're not hearing or being taught overtly racist things. And is that the kind of 
biases that people need to be more aware of that you're you're talking about that they bring to the table, even if they feel enlightened? I have had the unique experience in the past few years of being invited to some of the tables where real discussions are had about how to change things. And the interesting thing about that for me is you don't have a seat at the table unless you can invite other people. If you are the only person at that table, it's your job, it's your responsibility to flip that table over. And I kind of don't think that was what people actually thought they were going to get from me when they invited me to their tables. I have been uh, disruptive is a word I'd like to use in the sense that when I see systems that are designed to discriminate, my presence is disruptive to that. And that feels like a big burden to carry. Have you just accepted that things aren't right and for them to change, you have to carry that mantle? It doesn't feel like a big burden to carry. I get to do what I do because generations before me did more than I did. I stand comfortably atop the shoulders of folks who sacrificed way more than I will ever know and set examples for me that I can only hope to emulate. It's my job at to honor everyone that went before me to make the path easier for those who come after, to make the mountain higher for those who follow. Well, that's a wonderful sentiment. So given that, do you feel, given what happened in 2020 and the start we're off to in 2021, do you feel optimistic or, or pessimistic or you're not prepared to make any proclamations at this point? I'll tell you that I don't do optimism or pessimism. I do resolve. So what I see is that we're starting to have conversations that weren't had before. I see that there's starting to be an acceptance and a a, a general use of terms like white supremacy that didn't exist before. Uh, I don't see changes yet. I think change is resistant. Uh, I will tell you that I just finished an article for The Blend, which which is meant to address the use of the phrase multicultural in our marketing when we talk about our hospitality. And my response to multicultural is, I'm not going to make a case for altruism here. I'm not going to argue anyone's goodness or badness. I'm going to say that This is financially irresponsible. It is financially irresponsible to put Blacks and Asians and the Hispanic community and the queer community and anyone who's marginalized in the same bucket. Those are dollars you are leaving on the table. I I don't believe corporations are ever motivated by the desire to do the right thing, but you tell them how to make more money and everyone wants to hear what you've got to say. And if we want to make, if these people want to make more money, diversify their management staff, diversify their advertising, diversify their product base, they make more money, which leads to more incentives to actually change the nature of their policies, which leads to making more money. It's a virtuous cycle. But it never starts, it never starts with the desire to do good in a capitalist society. Never. That, that is very interesting food for thought. All right, we're going to take another break. And when we come back, 
Jackie's going to share his Julia moment. Get in touch. Send us an email or a voice memo to contact at juliachildfoundation.org or better yet, tweet us at juliachildjcf and let us know what you think about today's show or share your ideas for future guests. For more Bon Mots to raise a glass to, the new book of Julia's quotes, People Who Love to Eat Are Always the Best People and Other Wisdom, is out now in hardcover and ebook from Knopf. Ask or search for it at your favorite bookseller. We'll be right back. When you flip anything, you really, you just have to have the courage of your convictions, particularly if it's sort of a loose mass like this. Well, that didn't go very well. See, when I flipped it, I didn't, I didn't have the courage to do it the way I should have. But you can always pick it up, and if you're alone in the kitchen, who is going to see? From Julia's immortal words, we move into our last segment, which we call the Julia moment. Here's when we ask our guest to share their favorite Julia memory, moment, or how she might have inspired them in their career. Jackie, what's your Julia moment? So I grew up as a child whose mother made everything from scratch. I didn't know what store-bought bread tasted like until I was 13 or 14. Lucky you. One of the earliest things I remember my mother telling us is, if you can read and follow instructions, you can do anything. She said that, and I realized, being taught to read at three years old, that the majority of her books were cookbooks. And I'm old enough to remember Julia Child being on TV. I remember I had this one moment where I saw the cookbook in her library and saw the person on the television and I realized, this is the same person. I can do this because I can read and follow instructions. I can do anything. That was my Julia Child moment. Oh, that's so lovely. I love that. And lucky you that you grew up in a household uh, where everything was homemade. It, it, it was the best, and it's something that I believe in entirely. This is the beauty of something like a cookbook is it's data transfer. And it's, it's, not, just, it's not just information, it's culture. It's freedom. Uh, I've been stuck in this house by myself now for the last 11 months with my cat. And the fact that I can now have access to all these recipes means I'm not going crazy getting tired of my own cooking. I can make my own food. I can bake bread. I can make sauces. I can pickle. I can ferment. I can do anything, again, because I can read and follow instructions. That is a great way to phrase it. And I think I feel like we arrived at this moment in thinking about Julia's legacy, that as awful as the pandemic has been, I'd feel like if Julia was still here, she'd be like, see, see what I was telling you? It was going to matter to know how to cook and have the resources and you say to be able to read and follow directions. Yeah. And I have to say, you definitely want to check out Jackie's Instagram. You have the most amazing cat, and I'm not even a cat person, but Julia was. Can you just tell us your cat's name and what makes him, is it a him, distinctive? It's a him. His official, his full name is uh, Major Bowie Stardust Esquire, uh, but he has the name Bowie because he has one bright blue eye and one bright green eye. Yeah, he's. I've never seen a cat like it. And I did you know that that Julia was a huge cat fan? I did not know that. 
Yes, there, there's more than one book about Julia's love of cats, and any um, photo of Julia and cats on social media will get massive attention. So for cat fans out there, you should check out Jackie's feed. So, so do you call him Bowie? By Is that his short name? Uh, Bowie is his name, uh, but lately he goes by Mr. Murder because he really needs to get his nails clean. <laughs> Well, Jackie, thank you so much for joining us and and sharing both um, the joy of what you do and the deep thinking of what you do and for your Julia moment. We appreciate it. An absolute honor and a pleasure. Please stay safe out there. We will do our best. And thanks, everyone, for listening today. So if you want to keep up with the latest from Jackie uh, about the new iterations of Sorel and Bowie Stardust's latest exploits. You can follow him. It's at the Liquortarian on Instagram and at Jack from BKLN on Twitter. For the latest from the foundation and about new podcast episodes, it's at Julia Child on Facebook and at Julia Child Foundation on Instagram. It's at Julia Child JCF and I'm at T. Shulkin on Twitter. The Julia Child audio clip from The French Chef is used with permission from our friend at WGBH. Thanks to my co-producer of The Foundation, Lauren Salkeld, and our sound engineer at Heritage Radio Network, Amanda Wang. Our theme song is New French Horn by Novi Veltorni. We're on the air on Heritage Radio Network on Thursdays at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific, with downloads available soon after wherever you find your podcasts. We look forward to bringing you back into the Foundation's world next time on Inside Julia's Kitchen. This program is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter. Our handle is at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com forward slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, and more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.